I'm expecting a really great Q&A since people who logged on noticed that our, our live stream, I could I, like it went dead so that you've now experienced a devil attack and that usually happens when, oh, sorry, start again. So alhamdulillah, bismillah rahman rahim So yeah, so you noticed that we had a bit of a devil attack when we got started because the live stream died. So I'm expecting a very good Q&A. That usually happens when good things are about to happen. So alhamdulillah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to just welcome everyone um, for another wonderful Q&A session. I, these are like really my favorites, um, as I've said many times. And I want to thank everybody for, um, for all the questions. We got a ton of questions, and of course, they're all amazing. Um, they, you know, run the range of all kinds of things. And so please say a prayer for me that I curate properly and we kind of um, introduce things that are really important to people right now and that, um, you know, someone out there really needs to hear, inshallah. So, but before we get started, I just wanted to, um, again, highlight, you know, I'm so excited about the new Quran um, halakha that will start next Saturday, inshallah. Um, I, um, you know, I have the benefit of hearing like little bits and pieces at night and, you know, of, of what the professor is finding. And, and all I can say is that this will seriously revolutionize the way we understand the Quran. So um, it's such an important project um, that I honestly, I don't know why we don't just drop everything and all like get behind it and do it. Because, um, you know, even like with some of the questions that I've received here for the Q&A, a lot of people often ask, like, can you please ask the professor what this particular verse means? You know, what does God say about this, that, or the other thing? And so I had one of those types of questions, and it was over something huge, um, because it sort of hinges on how you understand a particular verse or two or three in the Quran. And so I was sharing that question with the professor. And, you know, normally he would probably try to answer something, but he was like, you know, how can we understand like an isolated verse without understanding the context of what happens, the whole chapter, the whole message of the chapter. And, you know, it's really like wrong to try and extrapolate. And then he went down and broke down why this particular verse is not something that we should hinge like our whole understanding of, of an issue on. And it struck me like already because I've been part of so many, you know, tafsir halakha where we go carefully line by line through the Quran and we understand that every single line, even every single word has like nuanced layers of meaning. Now I feel like when I approach sort of a any English translation of the Quran, I feel a little bit cheated because it's like, you know, you gave me one translation but you didn't let me know about the oceans of meaning that could be here. So I feel like it's sort of, um, you know, um, misrepresenting what the Quran says. So maybe it's just, you know, now that I've been spoiled to hear this, you know, very rich um, description. Um, but it's changed the way that I understand the Quran and it's changed the way that I understand God. You know, it's like there's so much more here. So when now you add this new layer where it's like, okay, you really have to understand the whole surah and the context of the surah and the, me the moral message that came with it, you really feel like it's not enough just to pluck a, you know, an individual um, you know, verse and try to understand that and then overlay it on some massive issue. So I think that when we get into um, next week's halakha, inshallah, you know, people, I mean, this is going to be completely new to me. I just hear like little minuscule snippets. But, um, but what I've heard is just, you know, as I've said, mind-blowing. And I hope that people will, 
will recognize how revolutionary and how important this is. And, you know, we're, we're going to, um, I'll talk more later about, you know, a fundraising campaign and, and all of that, because I think the difference between all of us getting behind something like this and trying to raise funds to support this research is, you know, are we going to have a halakha on this issue, you know, once a month, once every two months, once every six months, or are we going to have it like literally every week? And, you know, and none of us know how long we're going to be on this planet. So, you know, I think that this is an opportunity for all of us as a community to have access to knowledge that it takes, you know, a scholar, an entire lifetime, a study of the Quran to reach and be able to achieve. And that happens, you know, every thousand years. So this is our chance. And we can't let um, let this knowledge leave um, without, you know, getting it and making it available and making it you know, a priority for us to really preserve as quickly as possible. So that's my pitch for today and more, inshallah, next week. But so please join us. And, um, you know, and again, thank you for all the people who have written in to say that they are interested in becoming a committed member. So these are um, the people who will appear like on the laptop and interact with the professor so he can see your faces. <laughs> and we have, yeah, right now we have one audience. We have this lovely couple, our dear friends. Um, so we feel like there's, you know, a human connection. So they, they the, the weight of, of, you know, our interaction relies on their faces. So <laughs> they carry a heavy burden. So when we have a halakha with more faces, at least that burden is shared. But this is a chance for the professor to um, you know, get to know these particular students and interact with them, see their faces, react to their reactions. It's not obviously the same as reacting to their aura in a physical presence, but clearly we can't do that right now. But these students would have the first priority um, in terms of asking questions and, you know, and studying closely with the professor, learning this material um, and, you know, building that relationship. And then also um, the expectation is that, you know, these students will not miss a single halakha, like they are committed and this is the thing. So, but if, you know, but that doesn't mean that this is not open for other people to watch on YouTube. I mean, clearly you can watch the recording, you can join us live stream as always, as we do with all the other halakhas. Um, but this is going to be um, something different and something special. So, um, so that's it. And so please do, if you're, if you're interested and you still haven't written me, that's fine. Just please write to me. Let me know about yourself, who you are, what your background is, um, what your interest is. Um, and this is something that the professor will be looking at all of these to decide who he will include in that core group. So that's really why I am um, asking people to share about themselves. So, um, so thank you very much. And with that, um, I, I have like a bunch of questions um, from you know, the last Q&As that we've had, I've had, I have new questions. So again, my apologies up front that um, we have way more than we can cover. Um, but we'll continue, inshallah, to do more Q&As because these, I think, are really special and really important. Um, and they really get at what people are, are concerned about. So, did you want to say anything? Yes. Yeah, of course. Go ahead. <laughs> so she's recording up. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى اله وصحبه ربنا عالمين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل before we start the q a um, the the tafsir was supposed to start today but we postponed it one week um, uh, because uh, Sharif couldn't be with us today, um, 
Anyway, what what I wanted to say about the the inshallah the the tafsir halqa next week. Classical tafsir, traditional tafsir, uh, goes ayah by ayah, and we unpack the meanings of the words, the relationship between the words and each other, um, and the, the theme that is discussed is often in relation to the relationship between a group of ayahs within a surah and mostly with the short surahs with Qasar al do we talk about the relationship between the various themes within the surah uh, to each other but it we don't do that with the longer surahs and that classical tafsir um, leaves open one big question, and that is why, what role does each surah play in the Quran? I mean, why do we have the number of surahs that we do? Would it have been possible to shift around the ayahs within a surah and still maintain coherence within the body of each surah. I mean, to put it simply, what role does each surah play in the Quran? And this has been a a, um, a, a long journey for me. Um, to, to the, the question that I started out with is why is a surah a surah? Why do we have the beginning of a surah, the middle of a surah, the end of a surah? And does a surah have a thematic coherence like the chapter in a book? Are surahs parallel to chapters? But why do we have the number of chapters that we do in the Quran? What message, is there a message that each surah, so when we say Al-Baqarah or we say Ali Amran or we say Nisa, uh, do each of these chapters play a or maintain a thematic coherence within each surah so that the Quran could not have had a lesser number of surahs or more number of surahs. So in other words, is is part of the divine intentionality, part of what God intended is for each surah to be the way it is. And what is that intention? So it's an approach to the Quran, and inshallah we'll talk more about this, but it's an approach to the Quran very different than the traditional tafsir approach. And uh, out of respect for the inherited 
knowledge, I didn't want to touch um, that cycle of tafsir. So the tafsir that I regularly do, which is more very traditional, where I take each each ayah and I sort of unpack what the ayah uh, says and what the various opinions are and what the various schools of thought are and what all the different tafsirs said about its ayah and so on. I didn't want to touch that, and I'm, I'm leaving that as it is, inshallah, we, we have it once a month. Um, but the approach that I'm talking about, this this other um, possibility of halakhah, um, doesn't pause at each ayah, but rather asks the total question of what is the role that each surah as a unit plays. So if we are able to finish the new cycle of tafsir, then in a way you would be receiving an introduction to each surah in the Quran, why that surah or under what circumstances the surah was revealed as a surah, and what is the total message of that surah? And why do we have that surah in the Quran? What specific role does each surah in the Quran play? Um, so as a total package, what all the surahs of the Quran, what does Ali um, what does Al-Baqarah do? What does Ali Umran do? What does Nisa do? What does Al-Ankabut do? Um, what does Surah Al-Nahl do? Uh, why is it that we the revelation would have been different if there was the Quran without a Baqarah? Or if there was a Quran without Surah Al-Nisa? Or if there was a Quran without Surah Al-Mujadila? Uh, that question is often ignored because I think a lot of Muslims just that that's not a methodology that they are taught or that they spend a lot of time on and a lot of Muslims think that the Quran just repeats itself um, over and over and over and they're not really sure what any particular surah apply, plays in the Quran, what any, what the role of any of the surahs in the Quran really are. And why is it that we have in Nisa, or why is it that we have Surah Al-Hadid, or why is it that we have Sajda, or, you know, all the various surahs. But I just want to, to, to underscore that the type of project that we're talking about, the halaqa, inshallah, that we'll have next week, is a sample halaqa, and I want to underscore this because it, it is very difficult, if not impossible, for me to be able to keep the old halaqas, the regular halaqas, the, the ayah by ayah, let's call them the traditional halaqas, the traditional tafsir halaqas, and then add to them a new line of halakas was the, the, the approach that I'm talking about uh, that basically is the result of the research that I've been doing, my, my own journey with the Quran for so many years. Um, 
and for me to also keep a regular professional schedule of teaching and writing and um, the, 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 the new halakhas, for them to be done properly, need a dedication. Need, and and by, mean by that, they, they need farag, uh, they need um, uh, that I am able to focus on delivering this knowledge for a year or so. Uh, to 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 try to cover all the the surahs of the Quran that I need to cover, uh, and to to deliver that crash course, if you will, in what each chapter in the Quran, at least from the re- point, from the research that I've been doing with the, the role of each chapter of the role of each surah, and and why that particular surah is revealed at the time that it's revealed and why it is a surah. Why isn't it shorter or longer? Why can't we take some of the ayat and place them in a different surah and still maintain a surah as an integral whole within the world of meaning? Um, yeah, it, it, so it, it just, the, the type of commitment that it requires to teach this material properly needs a commitment and needs dedication not just on the part of the the part the the student participants but on my part and on my part that means that I, I I really cannot be teaching at the time I need like a period of sabbatical where I am focused on teaching this material and so it's a sample halakha in the sense that I am doing it to give people an idea of what I have in mind. So I'm going to pick one surah, and I'm going to give, to give basically a demonstration of the methodology that I'm talking about and what type of approach um, that we would be exploring and that we would be studying. The in, the hope is is that we will be, through this sample halaqa is that people can understand what I'm talking about and can uh, we can develop a sufficient commitment to effectively be able to buy time, meaning to to enable me to take time off teaching so I can deliver this body of knowledge before I leave this earth and. I, I do have a sense of urgency about it. Um, it will be a shame if the years keep going by and um, I go to my grave never having delivered that knowledge. I mean, considering that we've had, a, you know, considering that I don't see other Muslims doing it, and I and we don't see in the history of Quranic literature another scholar that has. We have scholars that have talked about thematic unity in the Quran. Uh, Fazl Rahman talked about it. Zutsu talked about it. Mustansir um, Mir uh, talked about it. But what they mean by thematic unity is often seems like. Let's see what the Quran as a whole says about 
jihad. Let's see what the Quran as a whole says about qist. Let's see what the Quran as a whole says about ihsan. What we don't have are people who try to engage each surah as a cohesive whole and deal with what is the message of the total chapter. Not, the, not let's see what the Quran says about the issue of Adl or Qist or Ihsan or um, uh, what not. So yeah, just keep in, that in mind because I don't want to create the false expectation that, you know, that we'll be able to keep these halakas and, and do them regularly. Um, to do these halakas while once a week while teaching and doing all the other duties I have to do when when I am um, on my regular schedule would be just uh, beyond my my abilities and uh, would um, you know I pray to Allah that that we we are able to you know that this plan does work and that we are able to raise the types of funds that would allow me to take some time off work and to dedicate myself to uh, recording this material teaching this material to a group of students um, and then by doing so at least starting the conversation for what I think is a very important field of inquiry, and it starts the process of re-familiarizing ourselves with the Quran and our relationship with the Quran, and how to read a chapter, and what does it mean to have a chapter in the Quran, and what type of relationship that one can develop with each chapter and to understand why Allah revealed the chapters that Allah revealed, not less, not more. Yeah. So let me just say, um, so my part of it, because um, my department <laughs> is more the finances and the organization. I try to clear everything so the professor can really just focus on, on scholarship. Um, and I'm going through the process right now of figuring out, okay, well, how does that, what does that actually look like? How do we actually turn it into something that we can support? And what I can say so far right now is to sort of streamline this and make it as easy as possible, we have to figure out how to create basically a research grant that would support this research and allow the professor to say to UCLA, for example, I'm going to take a leave of absence without pay because I just got this research grant and I'm gonna take a year off and I'm gonna focus on that. So what, how, what is that si the size of that grant? I don't know yet. I'm trying to figure that out and running through the numbers. But in terms of what it means for, for Muslims supporting it, I think a very straightforward thing is if we can reach a certain critical mass of monthly donations, then let's say, you know, okay, we need for the sake of argument, 500 people to give $100 a month. And you know, I don't know if that's you know what the number is, but just for the sake of argument, we need X number of people to donate X number of dollars every month, so that we know that for the next year we have this amount coming in to support this research grant. Then we can 
we can get it. So that would be then the fundraising goal is, okay, let's see how many people. And, you know, I mean, hopefully some people can give more. Maybe some people can give less. I think Allah knows what people are able to give and would, you know, would definitely reward any effort to support this. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of what I'm, I'm looking at right now. And hopefully by the time we meet um, next time, I'll have a better sense of what that finance, you know, what that fundraising goal is. Um, and, you know, thank you. A lot of people have already started monthly donations. And so that is, you know, definitely every single one gets us closer to achieving this goal. And I do believe, again, everyone who contributes to this will have a share in the reward because, you know, on the final day and it will continue to grow after you're gone, after we're gone. And all the people that will, you know, it will revolutionize their relationship with the Quran and their understanding you know, that's going to all be part of the reward. So I hope that that will, you know, motivate people to, to be part of it. So inshallah. And then, you know, it's also like, um, you know how people have these programs where you can buy a gift and plant a tree for somewhere, someone somewhere. <laughs> this is a good way to give a gift of Hassanat to someone you love, you know, and that hopefully that will continue to grow over time too. So there are a lot of different ways that we can, you know, try to spread the word and encourage people to take part. And um, so I welcome anyone's creative ideas too. So if anyone has fundraising experience, grant writing experience, um, you know, creative experience that can help, then please reach out to me. So inshallah, we'll make it happen. Inshallah. Okay, so on with the Q and A. Um, my, the first question. Are you ready? Are you good to start? Okay. So the first question. Um, I'm going to read. It's kind of a, a, a long email, but it has to do with. Um, Okay, I'm hoping you can help me with a thick question. I'm aware of the hadith regarding the impermissibility of men wearing gold. Are you aware of the rationale and purpose? And this was a letter written to me. Um, in other words, should this hadith be understood literally as gold metal, whether it's yellow gold, white gold, or rose gold? Um, is it because the gold is valuable? In other words, are platinum or titanium, which are more valuable, permissible, simply based on a literal reading? And the reason I'm asking is because a new Muslim convert who is newly married prefers a gold color wedding ring as that is his family's custom. He and his wife would like to understand the thick issues surrounding this. And so this person went around and asked several different scholars and got um, a really wide range of opinions. Um, for example, you know, one is that the pro prophetic prohibition of gold is definitive and categorical, and the majority legal position also includes gold-plated items, not just jewelry, so the prohibition of gold instruments, vessels, utensils extends to both men and women. Um, and then um, it goes, I mean, there's a lot that, that they shared about that position. And then another said that from their understanding, the metal um, gold is what is forbidden, not the color. So a, a gold-colored titanium, silver, or platinum are all acceptable. So obviously that's on two sides of the spectrum. Um, some logical ones are that it's a luxury reserved for women because gold has been the standard for wealth, so it empowers women by making them the beneficiary of gold wealth within a society. And others have said that gold as a property lower, um, lowers masculine traits, like Salafis like quoting this, um, saying that it lowers testosterone and sperm count. Um, so, and the, the reason why um, this is also important, hang on, I just saw, 
is that, you know, this is obviously someone who um, is a new convert and I'm, I'm missing where she wrote this, but it basically says that, you know, this also affects how um, a new convert understands how we approach our religion. And um, so that, that is the question. Sorry, I'll just see if I had another thing. Okay. Can I see? Also, I'm here wearing a lot of hats again today, so I know I know people are writing stuff on the YouTube video, so I have, I'll get up and check. My doggies are quiet right now, so we'll hope that they'll stay quiet. And uh, yeah, so anyway, if you see me popping around, because something somebody needs something. <laughs> so, all right. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. One thing that we can be comfortable saying right away is that it is not the color of gold, um, but the um, the prohibition for uh, um, uh, really it, it has to do with the 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 substance. A natural, a natural substance, a, a material that um, represents the hoarding of wealth in 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 a variety of ways. But anyway, so I I don't. There is no evidence that gold lowers testosterone or or sperm count or any of that. Um, that's I think that's just. The, the type of speculation and or extrapolation that some Muslims are prone towards. Um, but I, there, there's no evidence that um, this is the issue. Rather, the, the, there are two related justifications, uh, one more convincing than the other. The first justification that some fuqaha um, would underscore is مسألة تشبه بالنساء that men should not imitate women or not men should not do adopt practices um, that would constitute a form of um, um, bridging the separation between genders in um, so in the same way that women don't imitate men that men don't imitate women uh, of course the, the main issue with this is that often gender practices and issues of imitations are culture prone and, and culture uh, related so um you know, think of something like eyeliner, um, which for various Bedouin societies uh, or various um, 
uh, cultures uh, was something that men or the practice of a takahul, where you put a form of eyeliner, uh, something that um, uh, uh, was considered a masculine practice in our day and age. When a, a man would put an eyeliner, it, it's it's not considered a masculine practice; it's considered a feminine practice. Um, so, I mean, although there is this issue of of men not imitating women and not women and that being part of the the, the rational for uh, the prohibition against men wearing gold. That is not the compelling rationale, meaning that when you take all the evidence that was mentioned in the context of the Prophet ﷺ talking about the wearing of gold and men, it is more the interpretive communities, in other words, more the, the jurists who extrapolated upon this prohibition, who brought up the issue of imitation or the issue of tashabbuh than the Prophet himself, So in other words, that is not the core reason why men should not wear gold. Um, and that is not, when you look at the evidence, that is not the, the main rationale or the main illa that is uh, uh, that is um, underscored by the in as, as an evidentiary matter. Rather, the main issue has really to do with the hoarding of wealth, and the argument goes this way: that already in Islam, already not the Quran in particular repeatedly condemns those who hoard gold and those who hoard gold and and by extension we can say you know platinum is included uh, jewels um, anything um, that would constitute the hoarding of wealth why is that because when you hoard wealth you the differences between classes deepen, you do, do not circulate money in society, and where those who are rich remain rich, and those who are poor remain poor. So in my view, for me, if you ask me, I think that the real condemnation in Islam, both in the Quran and Sunnah, is the hoarding of wealth, not just in the form of gold, but in the form of anything that constitutes the hoarding of wealth. So if you're a wealthy person and you, you, you develop this relationship with wealth that you, you know, and this is an illness. There are a lot of rich people who are extremely stingy because they become addicted to seeing their wealth grow. And it might be that they preserve their wealth, not in gold, but they preserve their wealth in 
jewels, they preserve their wealth in diamonds, they, it might be that they preserve their wealth, uh, you know, anything that appreciates. The, the key is appreciation. So, I don't know, it might be that they preserve their wealth in Rolex watches, uh, it might be that they preserve their wealth in, uh, what else do people? Real estate. Uh, real estate, you know, so in other words, they want to covet wealth, they want to see it grow, and they want to eventually have it go to their children. What that does is that it prevents the circulation of wealth in society and it encourages the coveting of money and accumulation of surplus without the investing of this money for the benefit of society at large. You're not investing it. You're not creating jobs. You're not creating livelihoods. You are just hoarding it. And, of course, at the time, in, in, at, the, at early Islam, I mean, in, at the time of the Prophet, gold was the, the backbone of, of currency. And in order to combat that practice, uh, the, the tendency for rich people to hoard wealth, uh, it, the prohibition, and this is something that is often ignored by Muslims because of their relationship with the Hadith tradition, the prohibition was not just against the hoarding of gold, whether you wear it or you keep it in a, in a closet, but against the hoarding of other valuable material as well, such as jewelry and diamonds. You know, can, can a man not own any piece of gold, but instead spend his money in diamonds and preserve the diamonds? It's the same prohibition. But you just don't hear about it all the time because as a cultural practice, we modern people are not accustomed to men wearing rings of diamonds. But the same prohibition is there. The same issue is there. So it's not the appearance of gold, it's the, the principle of the hoarding of wealth and the, the prevention of the circulation of money. In other words, it's the ailment is stinginess and the ailment is classism. And then the, the hoarding of gold and diamonds, and you know, is a manifestation of this uh, of this ailment that we combat by saying, as a principle, we need wealth to be circulating. An exception was created, and this is the best way to think about it: is that it is an exception. An exception was created for women. Now, why was the exception created for women? Because of the fact that the saving of gold and diamonds uh, was a way that women protected themselves from not, not being provided for by men. If men go to war and they die, or if you know, a woman gets divorced, or a woman loses her husband, or a woman loses her father, it is the gold that she saved and the diamonds that she saved that will often save her from poverty. So it was a concession made to accommodate 
the particular power dynamics of women at the time and what continues to be a, an issue uh, of powerless women, especially women, you know, who find themselves after in, in, in the untenable position where they, they've, they don't have a supporter. Now, if we are being honest with ourselves, if we are approaching the issue, um, looking at the purpose of the law, the, the moral of the law, the objective of the law, we know that there are women today that as, a, as an issue of power, they are in a position to earn money equal to that of men. In my view, for these women who are able to earn money like men, they should not hoard wealth in the form of gold and diamonds. And if they do hoard wealth in the form of gold and diamonds, they risk falling into what is haram. Allah knows what their intention is, and, and you can't hide anything from Allah. If you are a person who could have turned your diamonds and your gold into an investment that creates jobs and that feeds people, and you are just a rich woman who just covets wealth, you're not going to escape the haram. So let's go back to your friend who converted. The traditional jurist in me remained um, unsuspicious of anyone that hoards gold. But I have an, but I understand it, and I know that women have an exception as long as it remains within reason, within reason, for the purposes of zina and for the purposes of uh, um, zina. Um, what what do you call it? zina? Uh, fashion um, uh, and the purposes of security, but. Just keep in mind that Allah knows who is truly insecure financially and who has turned the practice into a, a monopoly of wealth and a, a form that becomes haram. But for, for men, uh, it is very difficult for me having the, the type of a hadith that have a very clear statement that condemn men wearing gold for me to say, well, you know, since now currency, uh, um, uh, uh, since now gold doesn't depend, doesn't define the value of currency, it's okay. Uh, that would be very difficult for me because of the existence of so many precedents that prohibit gold for the wearing of gold for men. So all of these precedents create um, a, a serious pause in me. And unless I have a very good reason to, to ignore existing precedents, I, I would have to adhere to these precedents. And I don't have a very good reason to ignore these precedents. I mean, it, there is enough evidence 
that men should not wear gold in part because we want to uphold that principle of circulation of wealth and in part because it has been a long-established practice among Muslims that men should not wear gold. Now, having said that, I see converts in a very different light, and I see fiqh in non-Muslim countries where, where sharia is being introduced or sharia is being practiced in non-Muslim context in a different light than I do in Muslim countries. When I see a, a, someone who has been born a Muslim, raised a Muslim, in a Muslim society, wear gold, that carries with it various connotations about the morality and ethics of that man, very different, the message it conveys, the social message, the communal message it conveys about this man and their relationship to Islam, it, it, that is very different than the message that is communicated when you have a recent convert to Islam in a non-Muslim lands. When it comes to recent converts to Islam, we must have a sense of priorities. If, if it is far more critical that they first understand what shahada is. It is far more critical that they first develop a relationship with salah, that they develop a relationship with dhikr, that they develop a relationship with psalm, that they develop a relationship with the Quran. And wearing something that is either gold, like a ring, that is gold, a gold ring is a, is a very modest hoarding of wealth. So it is not worth making a big issue about it. Or something that is a gold-plated ring in, in non-Muslim countries could have a very different cultural meaning than it does in Muslim countries. And, and so it doesn't mean that you want to be perceived with feminine attributes. And it doesn't mean that you don't care about the poor. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you are, you know, flipping your, your uh, you know, flipping the, 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 those without means in society. We have to take the, the, the universe of meanings for that practice in a non-Muslim country into consideration. And all of that would drive me to say, would lead me to say, I just don't understand the mentality of Muslims who go to a recent convert, who try, who is trying to uh, develop a relationship with their faith and make a big deal about what they're wearing on their hand. I mean, Do you really think that Allah looks at this human being and says, of all the issues that I am going to hold you accountable for, I'm going to give priority to that ring in your finger? 
if this man truly understands their faith, they will come to a day, the day will come, where they will be able to answer this question on their own. If they develop a relationship with their, their Islam, and they you know, read enough books, and they attend enough classes, and they listen to enough halakas and lectures and so on, they don't need to be told. They will someday decide, you know, this is consistent with me being a Muslim, or this is inconsistent with me being a Muslim. But it is not, you know, every time we, we choose what to talk to a convert about, we are representing our faith. And it's one thing to teach a convert about what Islam says about hoarding of wealth and then have them reach the conclusion that my ring constitutes a hoarding of wealth. And it's quite another to come and say, Allah doesn't want you to wear this ring. I mean, why, I often, um, feel that when Muslims approach converts, where they exercise their own insecurities about their own faith and their own identity by taking it out on the convert. In other words, when you go to a convert and you, you want to feel good about being a good Muslim by instructing them about how to be a good Muslim, this really has to do with you, and that's the problem, is that you should not use a convert to feel good about yourself. That's, that's really wrong. And we often miss the fact that the type of iman it takes a human being to become a Muslim often far exceeds the iman that someone who is born and raised a Muslim has. And so really, in many situations, we have nothing to, 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 to we, we should refrain from educating a convert. We should just basically tell a convert, here's where you, you know, some good resources and send them off on journey. But it shouldn't be up to the every, you know, Joe and Mo to, to go to a convert and start trying to direct them as to what their faith requires. Um, yeah, I, I think we, we, we could leave it with that. I mean, it is, it, in my entire life as, as a Muslim, and, you know, someone who has spent his entire existence studying Sharia, it's really interesting, because when I think back, In, my, in, in, in the entire journey with Sharia that I've had all these decades, I've seen a lot of men wearing gold or not wearing gold, or, but I don't recall once that I've instructed anyone not to because every time I've seen it, there were always other priorities that were far more pressing. I've seen it with men who are wearing gold, who are basically not good Muslims, 
And so if I choose to talk to them about something, I'm not going to talk to them about the gold. I'm going to talk to them about the essential problem, and that is their lack of faith and their uh, often insolent attitude about God's laws. And gold is sort of an... an, an, an I, I would rather talk to them if they're wealthy about the way that they fail to give zakah and the way that they fail to give sadaqah and the way that they fail to give to support the poor. And by the time we go through that, I don't have any energy and time to talk to them about the gold wearing. Um, and then I've seen some Muslims who, you know, are wearing gold ring, but Again, there have always been far more important things to talk about. Now, if one of my students, someone who I have high expectations for, you know, it's one of my students who has worked through so many other issues and I see them wearing gold, maybe, I would probably say, you know, that's not becoming. But it hasn't happened. Because by the time someone gets through that process of being my student, they, they, they reach a resolution by themselves. And so I'm trying to say is that we have to shift our attitudes. We can't continue picking on converts in this way. And it is not, we have to understand that for every law, there is a universe of reasons and, and, and issues and causes and objectives. And you cannot just think of the law as some type of command without the rational for it and the universe of meanings that brought that law to existence in the first place and that gave that law its place in the universe of priorities. And the universe of priorities is very critical. Alhamdulillah, I just have a couple of follow-up questions to go with that. Um, someone asked, um, what about if you pay zakat on the wealth or you know on the jewelry? And related to that, somebody asked also if they can pay off any unpaid zakat for their parents because their parents passed away um, her mom had no money to be able to pay zakat for her jewelry and she couldn't let go of her jewelry due to financial hardship because that's all she had. But now her mom passed away and she wanted to um, see if she could pay off um, any zakat that was due on her mom's behalf. Yeah. Um, one, well, the, you can pay off any zakat that your mom owed uh, and you can pay it off for her. Uh, because that's considered a debt, and you can pay off a debt for your parents um, that your parents owed. Uh, but uh, just keep in mind that um, when a jewelry, there are several exceptions. Uh, jewelry that you wear, there is no zakat on it. The, a jewelry that w woman wears, um, and. There are, although there are different opinions, but the 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 majority opinion is that as long as you wear it once a year, um, it's considered jewelry that you wear. Uh, so that that's for women. The the 
if if you own jewelry and you actually use it for zina, uh, there's no zakah on on the jewelry. Uh, the other thing is that the issue of whether a woman who owns jewelry but she uh, is otherwise poor so you, a woman who has gold she can't afford to pay zakat on this gold but she owns the gold is she required to liquidate the gold and although there is disagreement on that the best opinion that i follow is that no you, she should not be required to liquidate the gold because once you liquidate the gold, then that that that's not what was intended of zakat. It wasn't intended to further impoverish the poor. The intention of zakat is to circulate wealth from the rich to the poor. But if someone can't afford to pay the, the the only way they can they can have a safety net is to preserve it from liquidation uh, and they cannot afford to pay the zakah without liquidating the safety net in other words without getting this rid of the safety net within the law there is a comfortable exception for women and their jewelry and there there is in my opinion sufficient evidence to support that as the best opinion. So I doubt if if the situation is as you described, that your mother could not afford to pay the zakah uh, uh, because it would have required her to sell the jewelry. I doubt that your mother owned uh, the zakah. Now, you, you have a choice. You could consider that your mother owed a zakah and you pay it off after your mother has passed away. Or you could pay a sadaqah equal to that amount or even more on the soul and dedicate the hasanat, the sadaqah, to the soul of your mother. Um, and this is something I advise people to do all the time, is to donate money and say, I am donating on behalf of my mother or father. In other words, I, I want the ajr from that sadaqah that I'm giving. And remember, the blessings of sadaqah are enormous. People, you know, the sadaqah is, is, it's as if God has given you the key to, to, to God's barakah, God's blessing. And people don't, you know, if people were, were fully cognizant of that, a sadaqah would be a, a constant reality in the life of Muslims, like it should be. Um, you know, so you, you have a choice, you know, whether you take the fiqh position that she owed zakah and you pay off the zakah, or you just say, you know, um, I'm not sure whether she owed zakah or not, but I'm just going to pay it as a sadaqah for her soul, which, is, which would be very advisable and would be very kind of you. Alhamdulillah. Are you doing okay? Okay, so we are going to stay um, on the uh, topic of finance or money. Um, so I have a couple of questions that came in that have to do with financial matters. So the first one is, um, is it permissible to deposit money 
in high interest bank accounts for the purpose of collecting interest over time to pay off tuition fees for personal education, children, university education, personal debt, or even support academic institutions like the Suli Institute. And the second question is, there is a long enduring debate in my local community regarding the permissibility of bank loans to either buy a house, start a business, or engage in other financial activities. There are different legal opinions on this issue, and I find the debate lacking in clarity. The Quranic principle on riba or interest is a central point in this debate. The majority seem to be of the opinion that due to the need of the circumstance, one can take a bank loan if other avenues are closed. In other words, if the harm in not taking the loan outweighs the harm in taking the loan. A great example is when buying a house, um, is when buying a house, where the unclarity takes place, for me at least, is to what extent does the harm outweigh the good principle apply in, um, for instance, when starting a business or building an institution? How does one decide the limit of harm and how should one negotiate all of this ethically and religiously? And I'm actually, I'm gonna add one more thing too. Um, someone asked if you know they work um, in a context where they help um, people in the financial sector um, improve their businesses. And some of those companies also are not Muslim, but they deal in interest. So is it, uh, is it okay to work in a business where you're helping financial companies, like as a consultant and that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, this, there, there's these some issues that just never, um, that, uh, never seem to die. And uh, remember that the entire, the whole the, the entire edifice of of these um, islamic finance institutions developed out of that debate about interest in banking um so i mean th this old debate has from the time that banks had been invented basically uh modern banks and from the from the uh, 1800s and even before uh, where we have um, that traditional contemporary institutions of banking and, and interest-bearing um, loans, uh, we've had that debate, and a great deal of material have been written about it. Um, and so many fatawa. So, I mean, a, a, a huge body of literature. Um Islamic banking and Islamic finance, which developed in direct response to this debate, has had very, very mixed success record. Um, there, there, there's some, for instance, um, some very famous lawsuits uh, that came out of Britain where Islamic finance companies were basically charging what amounted to an interest, although they didn't call it, call it an interest, they call it you know, some form of murabaha or another. And courts condemned these companies for, in effect, overcharging their clients more than a traditional mortgage would have charged. Um, the problem is this, and to, to take 
this, you know, things back to its, its um, roots. Usually, the prohibition on interest, it all comes from the field of riba, usually. Usually is not just condemned in Islamic law, it's, it's condemned in Jewish law. The, the problem with Jewish law is that Jewish law created an exception when Jews are dealing with non-Jews. So it basically said that Jews can charge non-Jews uh, interest. The prohibition against usury doesn't apply to interaction between Jews and non-Jews. Uh, that, of course, there, you know, there are various opinions within Jewish law. In Christianity, things became diluted because although canon law prohibits usury, uh, like all religious traditions, um, the whole role of law and law as a possible obstacle to salvation became compromised in Christian theology because in Christian theology, if all you need to do is accept the Savior, Jesus as your Savior, uh, then, you know, God is going to forgive whatever usurious practices you, you engage in, and that diluted a whole great deal of issue. Although, you know, if you talk to, to, to hard-nosed canonists, the, the, you know, people who truly believe in canon law, they'll tell you, usury is, is forbidden. It's, 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 it's in. Okay, so that's the funny thing, is that all the religious traditions condemn usury. And not only that, but even the common law and civil law system condemn usury as well. Why? What is so awful about usury? Well, what's so awful about usury is that it creates, it reaffirms institutions of dominance and oppression in society. Because those who have exploit the need of those who do not have and say, we will give you money to circulate, but you have to pay it back to us extra. So, you know, as a rich person, it, which is exactly what's happening all over our society, where wealthy people sit in their offices, you know, on their behinds all day, and they send, they have working people go out there and work, and they make money basically by, by allowing, by supplying currency. They, they don't engage in any form of useful labor. All they do is they provide currency, and because they provide currency, they make profits, and then the rich remain rich and get richer, and the poor get more and more in debt and never get out of their poverty. So, the, 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 and there are two types of ribas that uh, the, uh, the jurors talk about, riba al-fadl and riba al-nasi'a. I, I don't want to get into it, because that's a very, very long juristic discussion. But in essence, what is so horrible about usury is are the institutions of oppression and exploitation. You don't want, it's the same thing, you know, with gold. We say it's the principle. We don't want people to hoard wealth. You don't want people to be able to exploit the need of others to make profits 
without labor, without the investment of labor or even the investment of risk. Because what that does is that it creates the institutions of power that we see all around society. Institutions where there is an elite that owns most of the wealth. They keep making their wealth grow larger and larger without taking any risks, without investing any labor, without engaging in any opportunity risks. And while the common folks are the ones that take all the risks, the ones who could lose their health, the ones who could get sick, you know, and so on. So now, the issue is this, and this is why this has remained such an entrenched issue. The issue is this. To be, to be real and to be honest when we talk about things, the Islamic civilization, we allowed, we allowed the Islamic civilization to crumble. We allowed the caliphate to end. We allowed Muslims to break into a hundred different, a million different nation states. Each nation state has a, having its own currency, which makes these Muslim countries dependent and weak. Because each Muslim country has its own currency against a very powerful currency like the dollar or like the euro, which means what? It means that the institutions of colonialism which brought the banking system to the Muslim world remain the dominant institutions. And you create an Islamic finance institution today, but the Islamic finance organization can't really work outside the world financial system that is dependent on the dollar and on the euro. If you really want to challenge that exploitative usurious system, don't do business using the dollar. Don't do business using the yen. It's, you know, you start breaking the monopoly, and you start then talking and about a real banking system that could potentially be present a different paradigm than the banking system that could already exist, but. It is rather infantile, in my opinion. It's very infantile to say, oh, well, you know, we're not going to challenge the institutions of the world as it is. We're not going to demand that those who care, take care of, the, of Mecca and Medina, uh, um, you know, do anything other than continue selling oil and using the dollar, continue at the world stage, you know, countries deal with the World Bank, and it, it, and we just do these little cosmetic things of, oh, well, instead of calling it an interest-bearing loan, we'll say that, you know, we buy the property and then you sell it back, and then you we sell it back to you and then we construct the selling price as higher than blah, blah, you know, and so on and so forth, the way we construct Islamic, um, and, in, and then say that somehow we're getting around the usury issue. None of it is real to me. It's like child's play. You know, we are just avoiding the real issues. The real issues 
are the way that the rich monopolize wealth and that they continue their, their positions of privilege and power and that their positions of privilege and power are never challenged. They're not challenged by Muslim institutions. They're not challenged by any Islamic finance institution that we've created in the past 50 years. They're not challenged by Muslim countries that sell oil. They're not challenged by Muslim countries that borrow from the World Bank. They're not challenged even because of, even the way we approach economy is just so, and economics is so infantile. So what I'm telling you is, to be very blunt about it, what I've seen in my lifetime is a lot of people who created Islamic banks and Islamic finance organizations have turned it into businesses that they profit from. And that they sell this dogma about oh, non-riba institutions to overcharge Muslims, not to help Muslims, not to fight exploitation, but to actually reaffirm the institutions of exploitation and sometimes making it worse, like these lawsuits in, in England that um, I studied and, and was very dismayed and disheartened. I definitely have a mortgage with a, a bank that, uh, with a, a, a regular bank, I don't even know which bank, but I, I have a mortgage, so I'm not going to pretend that I don't have a mortgage. And the reason I have a mortgage is that I knew that if I, if I had gone to one of the so-called Islamic institutions, I would have ended up being, paying more and, and with financial institutions that are often run by people that are less reliable without federal insurance or other forms of financial insurance that makes, that, that makes me as a consumer secure. And my understanding of Sharia and the, why God prohibited riba is for the sake of the consumer. It's not for the sake of the technicality of the law. It's not just to say we prohibited riba, but it's to protect the poor. And I wish we can break, we can challenge and we can break the, the world financial system that is based, is premised on the exploitation of the poor. But that challenge is not going to be carried out with cosmetic changes that we call Islamic banking that we see today. So no, I don't think it's a matter of balancing between harm and good as, uh, you know, that might have been the way it was explained to you because that's the way Muslims think you can do Islamic law. Oh, what Islamic law is, is balancing harm and good. That's not what law is. Law is far more complex than that. Law it has objectives and has operative causes and have, have contingencies and has a, a dilla that you have to evaluate. It's not just a matter of balancing harm and good. It's a matter of understanding why the law is there. And my opinion, Allahu alam, Allah knows best, but my opinion is for Muslims who are, don't live in Muslim countries, especially for those who don't live in Muslim countries, Muslim countries raise a whole type of set of different issues. Among them, for instance, if you deal with Islamic banking, are, you know, can you end up, like my mother invested 
put all her life savings in an Islamic bank, but then the Egyptian government came and stole all the money because of the battle between the Islamists and the government in Egypt. And so my mother lost all her life savings because the Egyptian government stole it. Now, if in hindsight, I would have told my mother to my I would have told my mother put your money in in a regular bank because of the political instability and insecurity that exists in a country like Egypt where Islamic banks can be targeted overnight just because the government wants to steal the money of the Islamists. Uh, but for Muslims living in the West, the issue of, you know, there are, if you go take a loan from a, from a mob, from the mafia, where they, uh, you know, they, they, they charge 50% interest and 60% interest and 70% interest, I will tell you, you know, that, that is clear usury. But interest within the banking system in the world government, in, 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 the, in the world banking uh, uh, network that, exi- that currently uh, exists, um, I, I can't call that what was intended behind RIBA. I mean, that... that it, There needs to be a total approach to reforming this. Part of it is run for Congress and pass better usury laws. I mean, the the problem is usury laws have allowed the charging of up to 30% interest. And they don't call it usury. Part of it is that as Muslims, what is far more effective is to start a movement where we change the laws, where we define usury in a, in a more um, Islamic way, so that, for instance, you know, charging more than ten percent would be usury um, instead of thirty percent. I think that would be a far greater Islamically relevant response than saying, "Well, no, I'm just not going to take a, a mortgage, or I'm not going to." Um, Well, Adam, I mean, you know, I know that some people are just not comfortable and whatever, regardless of what you say, they just don't want to deal with interest. And I respect that. But I study the problem from a comprehensive perspective. And I look at the reason we have the law and the 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 stated logic of the law and I'm not convinced that there is an alternative to interest banking a reasonable alternative unless we go and actually start changing usury laws within the United States and then within the world system and then you know perhaps start uh, reforming the banking system so it's not so exploitative. The issue is exploitation, people. Whether that exploitation uses the word riba or interest or use or doesn't use the word interest. So I am not comforted by an Islamic financial institution that still exploits people but just doesn't use the word interest. That doesn't do it for me.
So, so to answer the question about, um, you know, earning interest to pay off uh, debt or helping, um, you know, helping com companies that do that. I mean, obviously, we don't really have a choice as far as which financial system. We I I think it is fine that if you save money with interest um, to educate your child. Just make sure that you pay the zakah on this money. Uh, you know, um, and I, I don't think that there's a problem with Muslims working in the banking system. I mean, if a, if a Muslim... There are many individual cases. So, you know, if, if you have actually a good, decent, moral, Islamic financial institution that wants to hire you, and at the same time there is an Islam, there is a regular bank that wants to hire you, but that decent Islamic financial institution is going to pay you somewhat less, then I would tell you, you know, take the job with the Islamic institution. But you know, if you have, when a lot of the Islamic institutions that I know about are actually quite exploitative in their practices. And so if you come and ask me about one of these Islamic institutions and you say, Do, should I work for them or should I work for, uh, I don't know, you know, what Bank of America? And I, and you know, you might be surprised at my response because some of the Islamic institutions that I know about are far more exploitative and un-Islamic in their practices than the Bank of America. Um, you know, if you told me, I my training and my 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 career is in banking, and the only jobs that are available are with banks. You know, should I become homeless or work for a bank? And it's I would say work for the bank, you know, or, because that is the world financial system that exists. And until Muslims get their act together and understand that they must be relevant to the world and relevant in meaningful ways. So for me, it's far more important to get the Muslim world, it's a far more Islamic cause to get the Muslim world to be less dependent on the World Bank and the loans of the World Bank, uh, or to reform usury laws in the United States, or to reform a lot of banking laws in the United States, that's far more relevant and far more Islamic to me. Um then the cosmetic type of stuff of, you know, well, it's technically interest. Remember that it's, it, it, we you know, the issue is usually, it's not really interest. All the fiqh, all the, all the jurisprudential discourses that revolve around the question of usury, we just for convenience, we've got grown accustomed to talking about interest, assuming that all interest is usury, which is not, you know, which is not a um, always true, which is not always true. Thank you. Can I, I want to say uh, something.
before we resume. Uh, this is to to people out there, and especially, you know, the young students of Sharia. I, I want to tell you that I take Allah's laws very seriously. Now, what that means to me Again, as someone who spent his entire life from, I started at a very young age. I started basically, you know, like like these classical music uh, performers that start at a very young age training in one thing. And that one thing for me was Sharia. And... When I take Sharia very seriously, it means that I take the divine will very seriously. And I take the divine will very seriously in that making something halal, haram, is very serious, and making something haram, halal, is very serious. But the thing that keeps me up at night, the thing that makes me implore and beg Allah for forgiveness all the time and pray and and ask Allah for guidance all the time a hundred times a day the prayer for forgiveness and the prayer for guidance is that I worry all the time about my responsibility and my accountability in the hereafter if Allah comes and says you made people suffer. You made people suffer under the auspices of representing my will so that you spoke for, for me as a divine. And because of what you said, people suffered, people were harmed, people... Uh, lost their faith, people were inflicted by fitna, people were shaken. What am I going to tell Allah in the year after? That's a very serious responsibility. So my attitude is always to try to solve a problem. Any legal matter that comes to you is a problem. And your role as an as and a purported expert in Sharia is to examine and study things from all sides, from all aspects, in order to maximize the benefits and minimize the harms to the extent possible, without at the same time diluting Allah's law. So, you, you take the prohibitions and the permissions, both the halal and haram, very seriously. That is an entire life engagement. And it's much safer to just simply refuse to engage. It's much safer to say, you know what? I don't know. Don't ask me. 
But sometimes for those who have been put in a position of study, those who have studied and studied and studied the tradition, they don't have that luxury. They don't have that luxury because if they fail to act upon what God has given them, well, that's their responsibility. That's an accountability in itself. If you could have spoken for the divine will in a rational, reasonable fashion and you fail to do so, well, that's, there's accountability as to that as well. So in everything, keep in mind that I am constantly trying to navigate the evidence of the divine will, the various adilla, to the best of my ability in order to avoid the specter of accountability where Allah says, you know, you did not do a thorough job. You did not do a good job. And that's a very heavy matter. It's not, to just say something is haram and to have that impact the life of people in a way that could be quite material and quite serious is not just a, a, a is not something to be taken lightly. That's a very serious matter. And that drives everything. And that's the way your 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 relationship to Allah's law should be. A a irreverence that if you cannot be engaged at the level of your conscience and totally and fully and completely, then don't even venture there. If you if this cannot be the thing that keeps you up at night, if this cannot if this is not the thing that becomes the vehicle where you develop a constant relationship with Allah, where you are constantly praying for guidance and constantly hoping that you receive it, uh, then then it is much safer to leave this endeavor um, to those who are fully committed. But it is it is not a solution to just tell the people, well, you, you know, uh, here's the law and I'm not going to worry about what consequences that law has for you. That's uh, that's tajanni ala Allah, and that that's you know your failure to represent the divine will and the law of God in a reasonable fashion is something that could end up being spell out very serious trouble for you in the hereafter, and that's critical. That's a crux. Alhamdulillah, that was so powerful and important and beautiful. Thank you. And I think you must have known what next questions I had for you. No. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. So, yeah, just a reminder, you know, these, are, these questions are cold for the professor. He has no idea because I, the very first Q&A, I, I thought I should show him. And then he was like, why? <laughs> so now I just serve them up and, you know, and I... It's amazing, right? I mean, 
alhamdulillah. So, and I take that, what he said also, as a sign of like what the next question should be. So, you know, here we give a lot of hard time to um, people who are um, businessmen and engineers and doctors and, and all of that, who try and, you know, convey or teach Islamic law. Um, and I hope that a lot of what we do here increases people's sensitivity and discernment to how inadequate and how, you know, how wrong that is. And because, I, you know, I think we are shocked oftentimes seeing how many people feel so comfortable speaking on behalf of God. And it's like here we're like, oh, my God, if you knew your accountability, you would shut up. And so I hope that, you know, that's conveyed. But some of it comes out in some questions, too. So here's here's a couple of questions um, that I think are really apropos. Characteristics of a jurist. So I, I think also, you know, there's we've talked here a lot about just the role of scholars and discerning, you know, a good scholar from not. So here's a, a, a relevant question. Characteristics of a jurist. There are many scientific fields similar to Islamic studies that are complex and would require a long time of dedication for someone to become an expert in one of these fields. How can someone become a jurist, but also specialized in a scientific field? For example, being a medical doctor and a jurist to provide health-related legal opinions about euthanasia, or a sociologist and a jurist to give a legal opinion about hijab in a society where Muslims are considered a minority. So that's, that's one. And then um, on the theme of literacy and Muslim intellectual life. So what is the role and function of the Muslim intellectual in the intellectual activism that is needed to revive and contribute to our shared intellectual landscape? What qualifies a person to be a Muslim intellectual? And what are the terms of engagement or conduct that Muslim intellectuals should engage each other with and with the wider community? How should every aspiring Muslim intellectual or student draw guidance, inspiration, and be anchored in the Islamic tradition while at the same time not only address current challenges, be it intellectual, socioeconomic, socio political, or cultural, but also construct and develop alternative modes or ways of inquiries and pursuits? And how can we better Muslim literacy um, in, a tradition, in our tradition in a way that is empowering and enlightening? So, I mean, I think all of it speaks to the idea of the role of the scholar, the intellectual, you know, yeah, these are, I mean, they're large questions, but let's um, take a step back. What is a jurist? Specifically, a, a faqih, a jurist, is someone who specializes in scrutinizing, comprehensively understanding, scrutinizing and analyzing the adilla of the divine will. In other words, the, what tells us what God wants or doesn't want from us? Well, one option is for God to be present and to speak to us directly. Well, we know that revelation ended with the Prophet Muhammad And anyone that comes, and this is a new fad that I've noticed in the Muslim world, 
those people who claim that they are receiving some form of revelation or another, either uh, you know, inspiration from Allah or some form of fatah or futuhat or rawhaniyat or whatever, uh, all of that is is nonsense. I mean, it, it, it unless you are claiming that you are receiving it and it applies only to you, but it does not extend beyond you, and that, and thus there is no need to share it. If you really believe that Allah is speaking to you and telling you what Allah wants from you, then that's just for you. And it's something between you and Allah in the hereafter. But the minute that you extend beyond yourself to tell people what Allah wants from them, what Allah wants from them as opposed to you, you have invoked the divine authority. And what are the foundations of the divine authority? The foundations of the divine authority are the adilla, the indicators, the, 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 the things that point us to the divine will. What are, where are those indicators found? Well, they are found in the text of the Quran. They are found in the tradition of the Prophet ﷺ, his teachings, they are found in the understandings of the family of the Prophet Al-Bayt and the companions of the Prophet of the Prophet's teachings, how they understood things. Why is it why why is it relevant? Why does it carry value, precedent value? Well, because we assume that since they lived at that time and they learned from the Prophet, then their interpretations have persuasive or sometimes could be binding authority, depending. And the, so you have the Quran, you have the Sunnah, and there is a critical requirement for a jurist and a jurist must, and this is, you know, I don't have the time to fully justify this, but the jurist is bound to understand all the interpretive precedents of those who came prior to him or her. Why? Because part of doing your due diligence in understanding God's law is to look at what other intellects and what other pious human beings have concluded when they try to study the same issue. Now, every now and then, you could find that there is an issue that is completely novel. And therefore, you don't have an interpretive tradition that you can uh, lean on. But then, so you take whatever is close enough to the issue underhand to try to learn from it some possible venues, some possible ways to dealing with your novel question. But you have the, the critical issue is you are searching for what Allah wants of us. And you are searching it not on the basis of whim or personal desire or personal preference, 
but you are searching for it on the basis of adilla indicators. Now, as long as you do your due diligence in searching for those indicators, you can, you possibly, hopefully, you vindicate yourself before Allah when Allah says, you spoke for me, on what basis did you speak for me? Well, if I spoke for you on the basis of what you left for us, for us to discover your divine will, hopefully that protects you from responsibility and accountability. But fundamentally, when you are telling other people, this is the divine will, if you are representing the divine will to other people, why should people listen to you? If they listen to you because they like you, because simply they 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 say, you know, I like the colors of your the color of your eyes. Well, that's not a valid reason. The the reason they listen to you is an act of trust. Is an act of trust that your inquiry is based on the indicators to the divine will. So What constitutes a jurist is diligence in studying all that is relevant to the discovery of the divine will. Humility, good moral character. Why good moral character? Because if you truly are engaged with the divine will, you care about the divine will, it stands to reason that I should not trust you if you do not properly reveal, revere the divine will. If you're a person who feels comfortable violating the divine will, or if you're a person who doesn't take the divine will very seriously, why should I, as a practitioner, trust your attempt to represent the divine will to me? Diligence, humility, good moral character, and these are just the basics. These are the, the foundational elements for what constitutes the, the formation, the, the process that forms a faqih. Now, the question raises a further issue. In modern systems of knowledge in modern epistemologies, we have various areas of specialization. We have medical ethics, we have sociology, we have history, we have philosophy, we have anthropology. We have various levels of inquiry. A jurist who truly cares about the divine will cannot afford to ignore the various fields of inquiry that might lead to a better understanding of the way the law should apply to given set of circumstances as yielded by the various fields of knowledge. So if I am a jurist and I want to do my due diligence, 
Sometimes sociology is relevant to my inquiry. Sometimes anthropology is relevant. Sometimes political science is relevant. And it, it is part of the due diligence of a jurist to study whatever is relevant to the question that they are dealing with. If they fail to study it, then they might miss something that is very important for a proper representation of the divine will and the divine law as it applies to a given situation. Now, can a sociologist or a medical doctor or an anthropologist or a historian represent the divine will? Well, that entirely depends on whether they deal with the adilla, with the indicators beyond their field of specialization. So let's say I am a sociologist. Can I make a claim about what God wants based solely on my study of sociology? The answer is no. Sociology is not enough. But is what I am doing as a sociologist relevant to understanding the divine will? Absolutely. And a good jurist would read what I do as a sociologist in order to understand what. So let me give you, you know, I read a dissertation. I was serving on a committee of a doctoral dissertation from Turkey. And the person wrote a very interesting dissertation about practices in Turkey related to marriage and consent. How in real life consent or lack of consent is practiced in various parts in Turkey when it comes to marriage. Now, as a jurist, is this relevant? Well, yes, it is relevant because I learned from this dissertation that there are practices, sociological practices in Turkey in which consent is not meaningfully obtained in a marriage. And it would be a dereliction of duty, it would be malpractice if I ignore the sociological reality that generates consent or lack of consent in marriage. But is the person who made the study equipped to represent the divine will just on the basis of their sociological studies? The answer is no. So modern fields of inquiry are very important, but I warn, I warn against the tendency of those who take, specialize the, the, the function of a jurist and that is why fiqh is a very, very serious matter. Because fiqh is the one field that is truly cross-disciplinary. A true faqih must understand history, must understand sociology, must understand anthropology, must understand philosophy, must understand political science. A true faqih is obligated to study and to learn everything that impacts on the legal issue at hand.
I am concerned, and I've been concerned for years. It's one thing to, for instance, study medicine and to say, I'm going to write on Islamic medical ethics. Of course, and then you study everything that is relevant to the issue of Islamic medical ethics. You know, is, is men wearing gold or not wearing gold relevant to medical ethics? No. Uh, probably not. Is women wearing nail polish when they do or do relevant to medical ethics? Probably not. But is reading in Al-Kindi and reading Al-Sahrawardi or reading Mullah Sadra relevant to medical ethics? Probably yes. And so if you really want to do Islamic medical ethics, you're probably going to have to learn to read these texts and to see what they said about problems of the human body and the treatment of the human body and then go on this analytical process of deciding, well, what part of the tradition remains relevant and what part of the tradition is no longer relevant. And you present your research and you represent your research not to reach an ultimate question as to halal and haram, but to represent your research so that the faqih can read it and can weigh it in, uh, 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 as part of the totality of dev- evidence in reaching an op- opinion about what is halal and haram. This is very different from the current mess where someone goes to medical school and then goes on the board of some Islamic center and then starts giving Sunday classes and starts pontificating about God's law just because they read Halal wal Haram by Qaradawi or they read, you know, some other. That is, that is a huge liability in the hereafter. And I don't, quite frankly, I don't understand the psychology of these people. I don't, I mean, clearly there is an intoxication, there is an allure to holding yourself as a person of authority. You know, you're a businessman, and or you're a medical doctor, or you're a dentist, or you're an eye doctor, and then on Sundays you get to play Islamic scholar. Yes, you know, it feels good as you do it because you enjoy being looked at as an authority. You enjoy people saying, oh, wow, look at how much he knows about God's law. But in the hereafter, I think you're in serious trouble. Because in the hereafter, you are going to be held responsible for every act of misleading that you generated by playing the role of a faqih. Because you didn't exercise due diligence. You're not equipped to study all the adilla. But you pretended to be equipped. And I don't understand those people. I honest, I mean, I've seen so many Arabs and Indo-Pakis play this game where, you know, they're a dentist or they're an eye doctor or they're a businessman or, and then they go into the Islamic center and mashallah, they become an imam. And what, you know, do they really think they're not playing with their hereafter? Do they really think that 
they are not going to be in serious trouble in the hereafter. This is not what they trained for. This is not what they spent their lifetime studying for. It's they haven't gone through the process that is required. The type of piety and the type of humility and the type of uh, 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 reverence to knowledge and to the 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 type of attitude that you develop towards ilm that is drilled into you if you're properly trained. They don't have any of that, and so what they do is a pretense. It's a it's a it's a form of children, you know, taking roles as they play child games. It's a seri- very serious um, responsibility, and I pity these people. I mean, I often just feel like, you know, if they knew what they were doing, if, if they seriously knew that what they were doing. Um, you are not, it, be very clear in your mind, you can contribute to Islamic knowledge, yes. You know, you could contribute to uh, Islamic knowledge in in variety of fields, but don't play the role of a faqih unless you go through what is necessary to prepare a faqih. Unless you pay your dues and you train as a faqih, and in our day and age, training as a faqih is it's not enough to study the Quran and Sunnah. You must study the Quran and Sunnah and you must study modern fields of knowledge. You must read with the same avaricious appetite that the earlier fuqaha read. Remember that the, the, the earlier fuqaha read Socrates and read Aristotle and they were fully on top of systems of knowledge of their day and age. Law is a sacred endeavor. Law cannot be, it is the most sacred endeavor you undertake. And so you cannot take it lightly. And my, my advice, first and foremost for Anyone that goes into the field of law, Islamic law, is piety. If you don't have piety in your heart, then you're not equipped. If you don't live with Allah, if you don't fear Allah, if you don't love Allah, then you're not equipped. Then take yourself out, otherwise you are really risking your hereafter in every sense of the word. When I see anyone talking about Islamic law, who doesn't have piety, I listen to them as a secular scholar, even if they're Muslim. In my mind, they're secular, meaning they they are as if, you know, someone who's talking about a tradition from a perspective who's not Muslim. Because for a faqih to speak, a faqih must be anchored in piety. There was a part to the question uh, about the role of the intellectual. Mm-hmm. You know, not not every intellectual is a faqih, and not every faqih is an, is an intellectual. A faqih is a jurist. There are jurists 
who rise to the level of intellectuals, public intellectuals. And there are jurists that never rise to the role of public intellectuals because they are problem solvers. They deal with micro problems. They, they don't look at the macro level like an intellectual does. And an intellectual looks at law, ethics, sociology, anthropology, and intellectual looks at the macro level not to tell us the halal and haram, but to augment our wisdom about history or about systems of government or about the way societies work and social movements and intellectual is like if you if you imagine you take someone you know we hear about people like Hamid al-Ghazali uh, 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 Ibn Rushd we uh, Ibn Sina was for instance an intellectual but not a faqih Ibn Rushd was an intellectual and a faqih but his writings as a faqih are distinct and separate and apart than his writings as an intellectual Ibn Taymiyyah was both a faqih and an intellectual, and his writings as a faqih are separate and apart from his writings as an intellectual. Ibn Khaldun is remembered as an intellectual, but not as a faqih. No one really studies what Ibn Khaldun said about law. It's not very important. But what Ibn Khaldun said about history and sociology are very important. So what does it take to form a Muslim intellectual? Let's separate. There are many intellectuals who are not Muslim or who don't come from a Muslim perspective. Meaning what? The first key thing for someone who would count as an Islamic intellectual, as an Islamic intellectual, as opposed to just an intellectual, is not that they're Muslim. No. Is that their commitments are Islamic. In other words, they are committed to the Muslim ummah. They are committed to the Islamic faith. They are committed to understanding the past of Islam and the future of Islam for the good of Islam. What I, for me, what defines an Islamic intellectual is to put it bluntly, someone who cares. Who cares about Islam and about Muslims because they are committed to that universe of meaning that we call Islam. For me, an Islamic intellectual must also have piety. The problem was a lot of so-called Islamic reformers, like the idiocy that is going on right now in Egypt, with all these idiots calling themselves mujaddidun, we are reformers. But they lack piety. 
they don't they don't have the love of Allah or the fear of Allah. They don't talk about taqwa Allah. Think about Christian reform. How many Christian reformers do you know of that were not piously Christian? All Christian reformers wore their piety on their sleeve. No one would take them seriously as Christian reformers unless they wore their piety on their sleeve. How many Jewish reformers do you know of that were not proudly Jewish and piously Jewish? I defy you to find any meaningful Jewish reformer who is not proudly Jewish and piously Jewish. Even when they criticize Jews in the most vehement terms, they did so out of love and commitment to their faith and to their tradition. It is only in the world of Islam where we find people who are proudly secular, like Nawal Sa'dawi in Egypt. Everything she says indicates she doesn't believe in God, she doesn't believe in Islam. She doesn't love the Prophet. She doesn't care about the Prophet. But we are willing to accept her as an Islamic reformer. That's, that's, that's nonsense. Unless you have love and piety, you don't... First, establish your piety and then come to me as an Islamic, Islamic reformer. So, if I am going to listen to you about how you want to think about Muslim problems, first, I need to know that you share my iman, you share my, my normative commitments, that both of us care about this religion, both of us care about the future of this religion, both of us believe this religion is the truth, both of us believe that what Muhammad brought to humanity is the truth, both of us believe that the Quran is from Allah, and then I am willing to, after you've established your credentials, then I am willing to listen to you as an Islamic intellectual. But if you don't want to share your normative commitments, you don't want to tell me you and I share the same normative universe, the same universe of commitments, then I will listen to you as I listen to any outsider to the Islamic faith. You're just an outsider like anyone. So for instance, I once someone recommended to me this Syrian writer um, he wrote a book called um, I'm like, yeah, but basically the book is Islam min al, um, uh, from, from the Quran to Hadith the, the, uh, his name is not Shahroor um, you remember that book that I was you won't remember the name right I'm like, yeah. Tarabishi. Tarabishi. 
Tarabishi. His name is Tarabishi. So I'm reading this book, and this man is telling me, oh, you know, oh, he's criticizing Al-Jabri, the, the Moroccan scholar. He's criticizing this Islamic scholar and this Islamic scholar, and that is something. And then I'm reading along in the book, and then I read the Tarabishi say that he doesn't believe in Allah. He's an atheist. I went to my friend and said, in what sense is this an Islamic reformer? If you would have recommended this book to me as read what a non-Muslim has to say about the Islamic tradition. But the man is an atheist. He doesn't share my, wor my world of normative commitments. He doesn't share with me my fear of Allah and my love of Allah. So when he tells me, as a Tarabishi says, that Islam was actually intended as an Arab religion and it was just an historical accident that it became a universal religion, then I understand what he's talking about. Because he's not a Muslim. And why do we pretend he's a Muslim? If the man says, I am not a Muslim, When he then argues that the problem with, with the Islamic tradition is that it has ignored love and doesn't understand love, then I, I, I can understand because he's never experienced love in the Islamic sense. So he's writing effectively as an outsider to the tradition. Just because you have a Muslim name or just because you come from Muslim parents, it doesn't qualify you as a Muslim. The same thing with Shihab Ahmed, my, my late friend. In what sense is he a Muslim? When he was being honored, and uh, I saw this, uh, you can find it on YouTube. He was being honored in one of the British universities after his death, and his sister uh, spoke um, in that event. And the first thing his sister said is that her brother had a very deep appreciation for good wine and that uh, he, a big part of his life was good wine and this whole things. Why is it that young Muslim students will take someone who goes out of their way to make their normative commitments that are not Islamic, expressly known, and insist that they are part of the Islamic tradition. In what, if we were not a colonized people, if we were not a dominated people, if we were not a brainwashed people, where would that happen? Have you ever heard of a Christian reformer who's not a committed Christian? Have you ever heard of a Jewish reformer who's not a committed Jew? A pious Jew. Where does this happen where outsiders get to speak as authorities to insiders from an insider's voice? Where does that happen? It happens with colonized people. People who've lost the right to self-determination. For instance, look at Native Americans. 
a lot of the people who speak about American Indian law are not Native Americans. They didn't grow up as Native Americans. They don't understand the Native American experience, but they get to speak as authorities. Why? Because Native Americans are colonized people, dominated people, people who do not have the power to define the world of authority in their own universe and their own space. It is only colonized people that demonstrate the type of trauma that we demonstrate when we say it is possible for someone to represent our subjectivities from the inside who doesn't share our world of normative commitments. For the you sociologists out there, for the you anthropologists out there, Study this and you will find that it is a symptom of colonized people. So yes, for all you young students out there, when I read something, I always ask myself, am I reading an outsider or an insider? Am I reading someone who approaches this tradition from a world of normative commitments that are bound and loyal to this tradition? Or am I reading someone who has normative commitments that either are outside the tradition or are irrelevant to the tradition. And that then allows me to be in the proper space as I read them. So you want to be a Muslim intellectual? Fine. Muslim intellectual cares about the fate of the Muslim ummah and the fate of this religion. For me to take to consider you to take your bona fides as a Muslim intellectual, I need to know that you are committed, you share the world of normative commitments that are owed to this tradition and this religion and to our God and to our Prophet. Actually, there's a, another question in this vein, which I think also helps to um, just drill a little bit deeper on the idea of jurists. Um, so the context is the unprecedented advance, advancements in technology have allowed us nowadays to collect data on a societal level. This has allowed researchers and scholars to better understand people's opinions, attitudes, and preferences on the macro level and how they change over time. Um, it is very surprising to me that Islamic scholars and jurists are not leveraging the power of data to guide their legal opinions and resolve disputes on matters that have historically been considered debatable and have sparked controversy. Gallup, for example, an American company that runs and collects national surveys, and the ACLU ran several surveys to understand the struggle that Muslim women are facing when wearing the hijab. Another set of surveys gives the reader a closer look to the state of Islamophobia around the world and the US in specific. Looking at the numbers and reasonably analyzing the data, one will reach a conclusion that Muslim women should refrain from wearing the hijab in public until they get comfortable to put it back again. So the question is, from a method methodological standpoint, is it a valid methodological approach for a jurist to leverage data 
to guide the formulation of his or her legal opinion about a subject related to individuals in society? And if so, should this approach be the norm moving forward? Yeah, this is a good question. You, you know, let's step back and, and, and go to, to the perspective of a jurist. A jurist is not supposed to be representing their own preferences or their own likes and dislikes. They're supposed to be investigating the divine will. I know that this is a challenge because for any human being, they must admit that they need to overcome their own subjectivities. I am a subjective human being. The way I was raised have defined my world of meaning and part of your training as a jurist is to struggle with your own subjectivities and to try to say to, to differentiate, am I saying this because of the way I was raised and the way that I've experienced life? Let me give you a very stark example. Some of us, I mean, of course, this is sort of a... a some of us were raised in societies where men regularly kiss each other. I mean, when they greet, hello, salam alaikum, salam alaikum, they kiss each other. Okay, you could have been raised in a society where that is not acceptable and in fact would shock you. But even more than that, a jurist could have gone through a an experience uh, as a subjective individual level, uh, they might have been molested as a child. And the fact that they were molested makes them react to the question of intimacy or any expression of intimacy between men at an emotive level. Your training forces you to, to, to constantly scrutinize yourself. Am I saying what am I say, what I am saying? Because this is what I believe are the indicators of the divine will and Adilla. Or am I saying it because this is the world the way I see the world or understand the world or this is the way my preferences are or my subjectivities are. So that's, that is one of the key things that is required for a jurist. Second, why is this important to the question of things like Gallup polls and modern forms of data analysis? Well, your study of the divine will will sometimes demand that you take the larger sociological picture into account when so if you come if you're if you're issuing an opinion about a woman who says i am i feel at risk when i wear the hijab i feel a sense of danger it is not an issue of whether you like women wearing hijab or you don't like wearing women wearing hijab. It is your understanding of the law as to why the hijab, what circumstances would allow an exception to the law, what circumstances would allow a license, what type of circum circumstance, what 
ultimately is the objective and purpose of the law, and all of that goes into your analyzing the question and rendering an opinion that you give to this woman, that then you become accountable and responsible for before Allah in the hereafter. And if you've done your due diligence, if you've spent your time researching the evidence in a thorough fashion, that chances are Allah is going to forgive your mistakes because you've done what you can. But if you were negligent in the way you approached the evidence, that chances are, even if you ended up giving the right opinion, that you were negligent and you might be held accountable just for your negligence, for, for the, 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 your, your lack of humility and, lack, and your, 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 your insolence with the divine law. So, yes, it is critical that modern-day jurists understand modern systems of knowledge. The problem with many of our so-called jurists is that they are really imams, not fuqaha. A faqih is someone who their, their whole framework is the study of the law and everything relevant to the law. And everything that is relevant to the law includes data like Gallup polls. An imam is someone who just basically knows how to recite the Quran, has read some hadith, but has not studied, is not equipped. And so for a lot of these imams, Part of the requirements for faqih is intelligence. To be quite honest with you, is IQ. is the ability to read and analyze. is the ability to read and understand. is the ability to read more than Quran and Hadith, but to actually read philosophy, to read theory, to read empirical research, to not just the ability, but the actual act is that as a human being, that's what you do with your life. A lot of those imams and mosques have never opened the book of sociology in their life, have never opened the book of history in their life, other than you know, these, these uh, uh, dogmatic time, uh, uh, dogmatic Islamic books that don't really tell history, they tell stories. For, in my view, these are, that's the problem, is that we don't have real fuqaha or have very few fuqaha. Colonialism has stripped us and has thoroughly impoverished our institutions and we never re-emerged out of that because it is unfair when we go to imams who don't have the intelligence and don't have the, the, the wherewithal, they don't have the, the methodologies, they don't have the training to actually serve as fuqaha, and then we go and pose fuqaha-like questions to these imams. And of course, what they give are knee-jerk reactions. They shoot from the hip, and they try to, when they find the world too complex and too challenging for their intellects that have not been formed and not been trained, to handle the complexity of the world, 
What do they do? They streamline the world according to what they read in texts. So they simply ignore the complexity of the world. They create a make-believe world in the imam little, in their own little spaces as imams in which the world fits the Quran and Sunnah rather than the Quran and Sunnah dealing with the world. So what you get from them is something completely detached from the, the world in which we live in. And then we start, well, maybe then God's law can't deal with the modern world. And that's a very dangerous thing to say. But that's the natural result of the lack of serious educational institutions. Azhar has been destroyed by despotism. Do you know you can't teach anything in Azhar without the Egyptian Amn al-Dawla saying it's okay? Sheikh al-Azhar can't write an article in Egyptian newspapers without Amn al-Dawla reviewing it and saying it's okay. And often, Amn al-Dawla will not even allow Azhar to say anything or respond to anything. So Azhar has been emptied by despotism. Secular despotism has completely destroyed institutions like Azhar. They, they don't yield anything. They don't yield fuqah. They yield technocrats. Unless, I say a million times, unless wealthy people understand that the serious jihad of our age is the jihad of knowledge, that we win and we lose on the basis of ideas, and that information today is the true power and the true weapon, unless rich Muslims create institutions for the analysis of information and for the production of information and data and for the equipping and training of real fuqaha, we will remain in the mess we're in. I personally will not go to an imam, I might go to an imam for, you know, some minor technical issue, very minor technical issue, like, does Ramadan start on this day or that day? <laughs> or like, when is Eid going to start? Or like, where can I do my wudu? <laughs> Where's the bathroom? Where's the bathroom? <laughs> but, it's very dangerous to go to imams with real fiqh questions because they're not equipped. <laughs> Alhamdulillah, thank you. Are you doing okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. We have a lot of big questions, but um, I have some, some relatively smaller questions too. So since you touched upon a social convention issue, I'm going to ask this one. Um... My next question pertains, this person actually, thank you because we got a lot of great questions from this person, you know who you are. 
Um, my next question pertains to social norms and behavior that evolve over time in a society, such as hugging and kissing during greetings. For example, men hugging women in greetings or vice versa. I have an understanding of this subject from a sociological perspective, but from, not from an Islamic one. How does Islam reconcile social norms governing modern society and the permissibility or moral acceptance of these norms in Islam? Yeah, you know, th th these are the really tough questions because, um, you know, if, if we had, ideally, we would have a juristic culture. In other words, there would be a lot of fuqah, men and women, and ideally we would be able to engage in serious conversations about questions like that without fearing that we would be labeled either liberal or promiscuous or fanatic or, you know, all the different labels. That, and we would exchange in serious discourse in order to ex fully explore what the divine will could be about these evolving situations. And if we had that type of rich interaction, the state of Islam in, 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 in our world would be quite different. But let me, for instance, a lot of people don't know that actually a lot of jurists uh, in especially in the jurisprudence in the first four centuries of Islam said that men kissing each other is either haram or makruh. Now there, there is and the irony is that a lot of them would say that touching the nose is okay, but not kissing. And of course, what 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 you see there, and that that by the way, didn't it's a it's a, a jurisprudential position that evolved, and it evolved in response to the fact that in a lot of Arab cultures, men do kiss each other. What is fascinating also is when you read in in the juristic tradition when they talk about men hugging or kissing and the role of fitna. So, you know, whether you hug or kiss a slave boy, whether a young a man can hug or kiss a young man, a, 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 a teen. Um, these types of discourses of course, most of us in the modern age don't know about them because they evolved from social contexts that elicited these discourses that are very different than our own. Now, of course, from a jurisprudential point of view, the, the critical issue is fitna. And whether the practice can result in the type of fitna that would make the risk 
of peeling, people engaging in sexual behavior that is haram, uh, you know, the, the juristic principle of what leads to haram is haram. Uh, now, I have to tell you that I, the way I was raised, in the society I was raised in, when I see men and women hug or kiss, all the years that I've lived here, but I still cringe. I still cringe because the way I was raised is to always see that as a suspect act. In the society I grew up in, the only men and women that would hug and kiss would be, if they're not married, that is, uh, or, or brothers and sisters and so on, were secular, westernized kids, sons and daughters of rich people who basically were always the enemies of Islamists. The kids who went to American schools and British schools, American universities and British universities, and they're driving expensive cars, and they're flouting their westernized values in order to basically say to the Islamists, you know, the hell with you. And so when I was young, when I saw these kids who would meet each other and hug and kiss, I always saw them as my ideological enemy. Now, at the same time, I knew that when my cousins would meet each other, they would hug and kiss, although the sheikh in our local mosque would tell us that it's haram for the cousins to hug and kiss when they, when they meet. Having lived in this society, I know that psychologically I resist accepting, revisiting the issue of fitna and hugging and kissing. Why? Because psychologically it has been drilled into me that men and women should not hug and kiss. But I know at the same time that it is not about my psychology and that is not what Allah would find acceptable from me. And that before I go and say this is Allah's law, I must base it on actual evidence and actual adilla and on a true understanding of issue of fitna. And the fact that fitna is often defined sociologically and culturally. Often it is the sociologists and the empiricists who can really tell and educate me about fitna, unless I just want to make it depend on a cold understanding of the text that is often completely disconnected from reality. So I am not going to give a definitive answer to that because I am unable to overcome my psychological biases against it. My, my, but I have to admit them. My fear of Allah compelled me to admit them. And at the same time, I, want, I would love to engage serious jurists on the issue of fitna and, and to listen to people who grew up in this society and understand what does this practice represent to them? What is that practice to them? 
before I go around just telling them, haram, don't do it. That, that, is, that is how you develop a religious law that has nothing to do with the reality of people. People will respect the religious law through its representatives. And if they find the representatives of the religious law serious people who worry night and day about being reasonable, they will develop in turn a reverence for the religious law that will mirror your own reverence. But if they find that those who represent the religious law are people disconnected from reality, are people who are often just catered to their own biases, cultural and, and, and psychological biases, refusing to admit even that they exist, they will in turn lose reverence to the religious law. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of issues that that give me serious pause, and what I, you know, I I don't, you know, have a daughter, uh, but if I was talking to a daughter or talking to my son. I would tell them, you know, just guard against fitna. Guard against shaitan. Don't initiate it, but whether you accept it on the receiving end or not depends on your own honesty with your fitna. I will never, in other words, you know yourself, and if you start developing the type of feelings, regardless of who that woman is, and you know the feelings, then run away from any potential hug and kiss. And if you're married, even more so, if you find these you know, trickling of warm feelings that give you pleasure, then no, then run. That, that's the way that I can handle my cultural biases and handle the crux of the law. I, I understand that all the discourses I read about kissing and hugging always, resol- always revolved around the issue of modesty and guarding against fitna. And so I cut through the chase. My, my son doesn't want to hear my long... <laughs> lecture about who said what and this jurist said this and this jurist said this you know okay give me the bottom line and the bottom line that i tell my son is you know don't allow these if if you know if you get that and allah knows so you're not going to be able to lie to allah and if you get pleasure from it if you get enticement from it, if you start developing thoughts about a woman, especially a married woman, uh, you know that you are then committing haram and you have to run away from it. If you have none of these, 
then, you know, it might be from the lama'im, even if it's an infraction, it might be from the minor sins that Allah would forgive if it's a sin. And Allah knows best because, I, it, it, you know, it's an issue that as an, Egypt, as an Egyptian Arab man who was raised an Egyptian Arab man, I don't want men and women to teach each other, you know, ever. That's the way I was raised. <laughs> but it's not about how I was raised, you know, and it's not about what makes me comfortable. I, I, if I had it, you know, if it's an issue, if you go with what I, with the world I'm comfortable with, the world I'm comfortable with would... No cell phones, no computers. Yeah, no. I mean, it, it would be a very different world. Go back to the dark ages. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm still trying to adapt to electricity. I, I prefer a world without electricity. 